Welcome back to another episode of Don't Tell the Babysitter Mom's Dead, a podcast hosted by me, Brittany Ashley, where once a month I interview a new guest who has lost their mother, and then we do a deep dive into a pop culture moment with authentic dead mom representation. And if you're like, wait a minute, once a month? The last episode you released was like three months ago, Brittany. Into that, I say yes. Yes, you are correct. But if you're also like, hey, my parent died, so I have abandonment issues, and I was counting on you to knock out these episodes, to that I also say, yeah, fair. Within that brief hiatus, I was able to do a lot of necessary mental health work. I went to my first ever adult grief group. I went to an extremely strange mindful self-compassion workshop that I would only ever recommend to you if you want to take MDMA beforehand. And I started finally reading Attached, which up until this point I had always talked about as if I'd read it, but I in fact hadn't yet. Good necessary stuff I needed to do before the new year. But also I have a bit of very exciting news, which is even more exciting if you happen to live in or near Vermont. I will be giving a talk called Dead Parents and Pop Culture Therapy to Middlebury College's grief group, the Dead Parents Society, this coming Monday, January 13th, 2020. So if you'd like to come, the talk is from 5 p.m. to 6 p.m. with a Q&A from 6 p.m. to 6.30 p.m. in the Dana Auditorium, which is in the Sunderland Language Center building. And I will stay after to say hi and give hugs and all that. I'm going to try and find a way to record it and put it on my Patreon for my Patreon supporters. But that is only if I don't get completely taken away by the pressure of performing and I don't end up doing it. We'll see. It'll be a mystery to us all. But on to this episode. This month I interviewed Chelsea Quinn. By day, she's an event producer at a nonprofit, and by night, she's a producer of live stand-up comedy shows. Regardless of time of day, she is an incredibly warm and delightful human being. In this episode, we talk about how her mom, Karen, was diagnosed with rectal cancer when Chelsea was 12, where Karen was given a six-month prognosis. But through treatments and just sheer willpower, Karen lived for nearly four years after that, but ultimately passed away 10 days before Chelsea turned 16. I think people always tell me that I'm a lot like my mom, and so it's a huge compliment. But I love hearing stories about she was like super wild in college and did all <laughs> kinds of crazy stuff, but also like really stood up for her friends. And so hearing those stories from her friends when they talk about like, this ex did this to me, and your mom was like, no, we're gonna like go fight back against him. And people just always talk about her as like really strong, really independent, really badass, really outspoken and fun. I think she was like the life of every party. Everyone has a story about her being a little bit too drunk and yeah. doing something kind of crazy, but so fun. And just like, I wish that we could have been older together where I'm like, I wish I could have drank with you and done all this crazy fun stuff too. Every part of my childhood includes my mom. There's no time that I don't feel like she was there. Like the core of who I am, like becoming a person was just totally with my mom. And what was she like as a mother? She was super involved. It was like, my mom would always say like, I don't want to be your best friend because... I'm your mom, but it was still the kind of mom who wanted to know everything that was going on. And we spent a ton of time together. We had a lot of fun. She was like the kind of mom where we were sitting at McDonald's once and she heard that it was going to snow in Atlanta and I'm from Florida. And she was like, all right, we're getting in the car. We're all driving to Atlanta to see snow. And it was like literally that night we jumped in the mm -hmm. car and drove to Atlanta to see snow. She always wanted to know about crushes and things like that. And shared too much sometimes. I'd be like, okay, mom, I don't want to talk about this anymore. <laughs> but just really, really involved. All of my friends loved her. Like my cousins and my friends saw her as a mom figure and mm -hmm. would call her and talk to her on the phone even when I wasn't around. And I was oh. like, this is weird. That's my mom. But it was awesome. And so, yeah. yeah, just really involved. You were 12 when she first got sick, correct? Yeah. I remember really specifically, actually, the day that she told me she had cancer. I remember it was weird because my dad had to go to the doctor with her. And so we had someone come over to watch me and my younger brother who was eight. And so I remember being like, that's kind of weird. Normally, like your parents will just go to the doctor by themselves. And I remember they got home and right away, my mom was pretty honest and open and was just like, hey, I went to the doctor. I have cancer. Before that, I had no idea anything was going on. I guess she had like seen some blood in her stool. And that's like she knew something was going on. But I remember her coming home and just saying like, hey, I have cancer. 
we're going to have to do surgery. We're going to do a bunch of stuff, but like I'm ready to fight and I'm going to do whatever. And at 12, you know what cancer is, but I don't think you understand the weight of it. And I remember so specifically we went to the mall like an hour later and I bought this like knockoff coach purse that I really wanted. (laughs) And I just have such a specific memory of that day. But I don't think I realized how sick she was until throughout the rest of the summer, she started doing chemo and then had surgery, I think in the late summer, early fall. And that was when you were, it was like, oh, she's really, really sick. You know, it's hard because 12 is so young and I'm Mm -hmm. sure you understand this because you were so, so young. Mm -hmm. I barely remember what it's like to be a person who didn't have a sick mom. Yeah. Everything changed. It was like, I was helping my mom change diapers. Like I was doing those types of things for her, like helping her change her colostomy bag and like doing stuff like that, that no other 14 year old that I knew was doing. And I remember I would always just feel so silly talking to her about like boy trouble or friend trouble or things like that. Cause I was like, but ultimately like none of that matters because you're dying. And she was like, no, no, no. Like I want to hear about that stuff, Mm -hmm. but I feel like it colored everything that I did. I mean, I've always been an anxious person done a lot of therapy since then and I've gone back and realized that anxiety is just how my brain works and probably since I was little. But I think because my mom got sick, a lot of that was blamed on that. So I was like, oh, I'm anxious now because my mom is sick. Mm-hmm. Or now I kind of understand like, no, nah, I think it was going to be that way no matter what had happened. But everything, my whole life felt super colored by it. And I don't think nothing stays the same. Like every everything changes. And a lot of big things change, like just in my interests and the things that I did. But it's hard because it's at this time when you're like changing anyway. And so I can't really figure out what was just who I was going to be as a person and what was because my mom was sick. Like I don't I don't know how to separate puberty from your mom's dying. Mm -hmm. So after my mom was sick, she got right. So she was diagnosed in the summer of 2002. She had big surgery and all of that. And then the next summer, we went on a six-week road trip. This is like the epitome of who my mom is. So we went on a six-week road trip everywhere. We like drove up to Indiana, drove to D.C., drove across as far as Arizona, up to the Dakotas, back. But her doctors were like, you can't be gone that long without doing chemo. And so she managed to get chemo set up throughout the country. So she would go to other hospitals and go get treatment and do what she needed to do so that she could take us on this road trip, shoving all these memories into as short of a period of time as possible. And, you know, I was 13 and I was like, why am I in the car with my brother for six weeks? Like, this is terrible. But there's so many funny, good, just like really sweet memories of that. How badass. Like, most people would be like, well, there's nothing I can do. I'm sick. And it was just like, she was like, nothing's going to stop me. Like, this is a thing I want to do. And so I feel very lucky. So specifically, the hospital bed was in our living room and it was right before my 13th birthday. And birthdays have always been like a really big deal in my family. My mom threw me the best birthday parties as a kid, really just the best. And her goal is to get the hospital bed out of our living room before my 13th birthday party so that my friends wouldn't see it, even though so many of them had seen it. It was just really exciting because even though it didn't mean she was better, I think as a 13 year old, like this means something good, I'm turning 13. My mom's hospital bed is gone. It just felt like something really good happening. Mm -hmm. I remember I like went away. I don't know where I was out of town. And when I got back, she had repainted my whole bedroom. And so it was like, you know, you had all your little girl like pink and ballerina stuff. Mm -hmm. When I got back, it was like lime green and cool. And I was like, this is my middle school bedroom. (laughs) And so, yeah, I think she just did a lot of really cool stuff like that. And I think it was like a benefit of her not working because she was sick. And so I was such a dork in middle school, but she would wake me up some days and be like, hey, you're skipping school today. And I'd be like, mom, I got to go to school. And she'd be like, no, you're taking the day off. Like, And I was such a nerd where I was like, mom, I can't miss math. And she was like, Chelsea, you're skipping because she was so not that way. She like dropped out of high school and got her GD and stuff. And so I think she was like, how did I end up with a kid who's such a dork that like wants to go to school? But I remember I wanted I to my- to shove you in lockers. Seriously. Like, she's like, how did I end up with you? She, I remember like, well, I wanted to get my eyebrows waxed so bad. And she woke me up one morning and was like, you're going to school late. We're going to get your eyebrows waxed. And I was like, yes, best day ever. Which is like so silly. But when you're 13, you're like, this is going to change everything. And so I think she did a lot of stuff to try and just make really fun, special memories 
she like rented a convertible one weekend just because mm-hmm. like didn't do anything in it we just drove around we have like really funny pictures of her in it but she was just like I've never driven a convertible before I'm gonna die soon I need to get one and so yeah she just did a lot of stuff like that specifically with like instilling lessons in you or teaching you things do you remember any of those conversations yeah they all feel like they were around sex and (laughs) things like that like now I appreciate at the time I was like oh my god even when I was like 14 my mom would be like all right make sure you cover your drink and I was like mom I'm 14 like I'm going to Christy's mom's house like I see yeah I was like what are you talking about I like I just remember every she'd be like cover your drink don't leave it unattended and I was like mom I understand, but like this feels a little bit crazy, (laughs) but now I so appreciate it. And I remember she'd always be like, no means no, even if you're fully naked, even if you're, and I was like, ew, the thought of being naked with someone was so gross. But I tell my friends these things now and they're like, oh, my parents have still never talked to me about that. And so it's so funny because my friends are like, we've learned more about sexual education from your dead mom than we ever have learned from our own parents. And so I think she was just really trying to get them all in. I think she knew it would be really hard for my dad to have those conversations with me. He did his best, but I think she was really just like, let me get all of these in. And all of the things I know about like dating and life and sex and all these things come from my mom, which is so wild when you're like, my mom died before I even kissed a boy, but somehow (laughs) she like got all of this in my head. Yeah before she was gone. I have a cousin who lost her virginity while my mom was still alive. And she called my mom the next day to be like, Aunt Karen, I lost my virginity last night. And I remember thinking like, man, I wish I could call. Like when I lost my virginity, I was like, I don't anyone that I can call. Even my aunts and stuff, none of them are as like chill and open. And I was like, man, I would have totally told my mom. Like, I don't think a lot of people would tell their mom when that happens. But Mm -hmm. like, My mom was the kind of mom that I totally would have been like, hey, I'm just telling you this. Don't ask any questions. But like, I just want you to know that this happened. And so I'm glad she got it in. It's I I am now that person to all my friends where I'm like, make sure you go get a pap, you know, like Like that kind of person. And they're like, "Okay, we get it. But I think she's really gotten my head. We were the house that people hung out at. Like we were the fun house. We were the house where people wanted to be. Everyone loved my mom. And so. I don't think there's anyone who didn't know what was going on. I was really open about it. It's really different because my brother is younger and he still isn't really open about it. Mm -hmm. He would be like mortified to come on a podcast like this and Mm -hmm. talk to someone. But I think I was really open about it. And I just, it was like people would come over and see the hospital bed. And so we knew what was going on. I think I, it's like so funny you think back to being 12. (laughs) She had (laughs) rectal cancer. And so I think I felt embarrassed that it was that, like, you have to talk about your mom's butt. Like that felt really embarrassing. (laughs) And she had to get a colostomy. And it was like, I didn't want my friends to know that she had a colostomy. Like it was okay that they knew she had cancer. It was okay that she knew that they knew she was sick. But for some reason, them knowing she had a colostomy felt like really, really embarrassing to me. But everyone knew. Did your house continue to be the fun house or did that start to fade away? No, it still was. My mom like loved it. She would be on the couch like, you know, not feeling well or whatever. And my friends would just come and we'd all sit with her in the living room. One of my best friends, we were just becoming friends at this time. And my mom would be like, Priyana, come sing for me and like make her sing in the Mm -hmm. living room for her. Did you feel any distance between you and other kids? Because now you had this like large responsibility and you had to have this perspective that not a lot of teenagers have. Yeah, I felt like nobody understood. I didn't know anyone who understood. My mom got sick. My mom and dad had some like big marital stuff going on. Me and my dad were in a terrible car accident where he was hospitalized and had a broken hip and like he was hospitalized for months and had to have a ton of surgeries. So a lot of things happened in this like four year window. And I think I just felt like I had this gray cloud and I was like, oh, I'm the friend who always has something bad happening. I'm the friend that everyone has to take care of. Like people's parents would drive me to school because my mom was sick and then my dad couldn't drive for a long time after the accident. And then my dad was living at home for a little while. And it was just like, I just felt like such a burden to everyone and was like, I don't know how I ended up being this person because my childhood was not like that up until 12. Like we were like picture perfect family vacations, like parents who loved each other. And then it was like, oh God, there's so many things happening And I just felt so othered in that way. And I had great friends and like there's like some benefit to being young when you go through this because none of my friends knew what they were supposed to do. So they just did what felt right. Where I think adults are so like, 
what am I supposed to do? Is this weird? And they overthink it. And so I had great friends. Kids are much more unfiltered. Yeah. They just are like, oh, my friend's sad. I'm going to be there. Like, Mm -hmm. I'm not scared to go hang out at Chelsea's house because they don't understand like mortality yet where adults are like, being around a sick person feels like then I'm going to die, which is, you know, just how our brains work. But Yeah. yeah, I felt super just like the person who always had something going on and Every song that people loved, like, you know, these like sad heartbreak songs, I always listen to them through this filter of like it being about your mom dying. Mm-hmm. There are songs now that I'll hear and I'm like, oh, this is about like having a crush on a boy and then he's gone. <laughs> but like I thought of it as like, oh, you're gone now. And it was like I thought of that as like this song is about your mom dying. And it's, I think nobody understood that. It was mm-hmm. a lot of live journal writing to like yeah. process it. You know, it's like a weird little time capsule. I don't think I knew that it was a six-month prognosis at the time. I think that's something I learned later. Mm -hmm. But I just remember it was like every chemo felt like this, okay, this is the one. If she doesn't get better after this, then that's the end of it. But she was super determined to be alive to see me and my brother both graduate from high school, which didn't happen. But that was her like her goal. And so she would do every radiation, every chemo. They'd be like, this has 1% chance of working. She's like, all right, let's try it. You know, just anything. But I don't think, yeah, I didn't know six months. I do just remember feeling like, is it today? Like all the time I just kept feeling like, do I get another six months? Do I get another year? And then when she ended up when it got to the end, it was really rushed. So basically she got put on hospice. We were told she had six months from when she got put into hospice. And within that week, it went from like six months to a month to probably this week to like, it's going to happen today. Mm -hmm. And I think that was the hardest time because I felt like I was promised, okay, you have six months. And I was like, all right. I mean, I was 15, but it was like, I can deal with that. I'll handle it. I have things I want to say to her and okay, we can do what we want to do. And then within a week, she was gone. I think it's better that I didn't know because I think that would have felt like extra just looming and scary. And it was already so scary. I already put a lot of pressure on myself. And I imagine if it was like six months, then it would have been like, have to do all these things in the next six months. And yeah. you just can't do it. It just mm-hmm. doesn't work. So I think my mom didn't want to mislead me. I think she constantly was like, I'm going to do everything I can. I'm going to try everything. But like, I might die. And I would get so mad at her. I remember we'd be in the car and she'd be like, I just want to talk about if I die. And I was like, I don't want to talk about if you die. Like, I, I just don't want to talk about it. What's the point? If you die, you die. But like, why do we have to talk about that? And I would get so frustrated. But I don't think there was ever a time where I was so certain that my mom wouldn't die. I think Mm -hmm. she was really sick. The surgery was really serious. And she was in a hospital bed for like six months in our house. And I think seeing your mom in a hospital bed in your living room every day is like a pretty stark reminder that she could die. Like you see someone be so sick. Even if I knew she could die, I didn't know what that would mean to me or to anything. So things started to get worse. She got the cancer spread. And so it was like in her bones and in her brain, in her lungs. It was just kind of everywhere. And I remember her telling me like, hey, it's everywhere. There's nothing that we can do anymore. Everything I'm doing is just making me miserable. And so she like, I think, really sat us down and talked about it and was like, I'm deciding to stop chemo and radiation. I don't want you to think that I'm giving up. It's not because I don't want to be here, but there's... they basically have told me, like, there's nothing that they can do anymore. She's like, you know, if there's anything that they could do, I would try it. And so I think she was in the hospital during that time. And she asked me and my brother, and, you know, my brother was so little that I think probably I was the one making these decisions. But she was like, do you want me to be in hospice in a hospital or do you want me to come home? If you don't want me to come home, I understand that. She was like, it's going to be scary and there's going to be people around and there's going to be a hospital bed in the living room again. And I remember being like, of course I want you to come home. Like, I want to spend as much time with you as I possibly can. Um, And I remember so specifically it was Valentine's Day that she went into hospice at home. And I got home on Valentine's Day and there's this like weird man just sitting on our couch. And I walked in and it was just, I think that's like when you're like, okay, this is it. Like whatever they've said, they told me six months, whatever. I just knew something in that moment had changed. And so that was Valentine's Day and she died March 10th. And so it was a pretty short window. We all did um, Relay for Life. And so even before my mom was sick, one of her best friend's sons had cancer when he was two. And so we started doing Relay for Life when he got sick. He's fine. But we started doing Relay for Life when he was sick. And so 
The weekend before she died was the Relay for Life, and she loved it and would always come, and everyone there loved her. She was, like, huge and very involved and did so much fundraising because she wasn't working, so she could do tons and tons of fundraising and was like, well, this is a good use of my time. And Relay for Life was that weekend, and we were all there. And I remember she she called and or called my dad on his cell phone and was like, I can't come. Like, I got up. I got dressed, I got ready, but I just, I'm not strong enough to leave the house. And I think that moment was when it was like, oh, she's never not shown up before. Even if she's been really sick, like she's always shown up. And so I remember we like called her throughout the night so that she could listen to things happening and, you know, just be part of it. But getting home that next day and seeing her, I think, so that was probably, 10th was a Friday when she died. Relay for Life is a Friday to a Saturday, so the Saturday before the Friday she died when we got home, I remember just looking at her and being like, oh, this is the end of it. And that week, everyone was coming over, tons of people, all her friends, and I think of the hospice people, the hospice nurses were like, why are there so many people here? Like, it's kind of weird. She's dying. And we were like, no, this is like what she would want. Once she was on hospice, everything kind of changed. It just went really quickly. Like, it's so strange because this time is like, I remember these moments so specifically, but then as a whole, it feels really vague and blurry. I remember we got into a fight. We argued about something. I wanted to go over to my friend Jake's house and she told me no. And I remember being like, why can't I go? And she was like, Chelsea, I just want you home. And I couldn't understand. But of course, it's like she just wanted her kids there. I don't think she wanted anyone to be gone. But I was like, get me out of here. This is terrible. And then that was like the last time I remember really talking to her. I think that must have been Sunday. And then that week she stopped talking. And so she just completely stopped talking. I remember my friend Carlos came over and he had brought her like a get well soon balloon, which is silly, but he was 16 and had a race car on it. And she was just laying there not talking. And we'd all just sit around and like we knew she could hear us. So we would just talk. And then all of a sudden, she was just like, don't drive too fast. And we were like, what are you talking about? But I think it was like she saw the race car, and she was just like, don't drive too fast. And so there's just these little moments. The morning she died, it was a Friday. So she died that afternoon or that evening, I guess. But that morning, I went to school. And when I walked in to say goodbye to her in the morning, the nurse was like, she won't take her pills. And so I remember I went over and was like, hey, mom, like, you got to take these and like open her mouth and put them in. And was like, hey, I love you. I'm sorry I have to do this, but I love you. And she said, I love you back, which I feel really, really, really lucky that I got because I don't think a lot of people got it from her. And so I'm really glad I did. You know, my cousin came over that afternoon. And, you know, before people die, they have like this burst of energy, usually a few hours before. And my cousin got like a huge, big conversation with her, which I still, it's like I'm I'm a little bit jealous, but mm-hmm. I'm so glad she got that. And so my yeah she was everyone's favorite aunt so sorry to my other aunts but it's true (laughs) so at the end of the school day our neighbor across the street called me and said hey you need to come home right after school don't do anything else and I was like what's going on she was like don't worry about it just like get home immediately and I was like okay but I knew you know it's like of course I know what's happening and I knew she hadn't died because they wouldn't have said it that way but I knew that meant things were happening. And so my friend Carlos, who I was talking about before, drove me home. And I remember we just- Too fast? Not too fast. He (laughs) didn't drive too fast. We just drove home. I remember in silence, like he just held my hand and we just drove home just quiet, like couldn't talk. There was nothing any of us could say. And he dropped me off. And I remember I got home and they were like, hey, it's going to happen tonight. This is the last few hours. And the house was filled with like all of her best friends. And so many people were just there. I remember somebody had ordered a bunch of pizzas. So there's just like pizza everywhere. And I was like, this is so strange. Like my mom is about to die. And there's just a bunch of people eating pizza in my house. Like it just felt so weird. And I remember my dad was like, do you want to call any of your friends to come over? And I was like, no, like I just want to be by myself. But I was so worried that my brother wasn't going to get home in time because I was in high school and he was in middle school. So he got home later. And I just remember being like, somebody should go pick Kevin up. And my dad was like, we don't have to, like, he'll get here. She has a few more hours. And I was like, nobody knows that. Like, please, please go pick Kevin up. And they didn't, but they were right. They knew. And so, yeah, we all just sat around. I remember I, like, painted her toenails and was like, my mom can't die with bad toenails. She would be so (laughs) embarrassed. And so I painted her toenails and we put our, like, family dog in bed with her just to, like, Mm -hmm. lay with her. And 
we filled her pockets with all kinds of things like drawings from when we were kids and stuff and everyone was just there I remember my brother was playing video games and I kept getting so mad at him and I was like Kevin come sit with mom and he was like I don't want to but at 15 I'm just like this is what you should be doing and at 11 he's like leave me alone this is too much to deal with I want to play video games basically hospice was like hey this is about to happen and so we cleared everyone out of the room except like me my dad my brother my grandma my mom's mom they were you know it's so weird the hospice is like tell your mom it's okay that she's dying and I was like I don't want to tell my mom it's okay that she's dying and they were like you have to tell her like she need to give her peace as she goes and so we all just stood around and we're like, it's okay, mom. Like, we get it. We love you. Which is so weird to think about. And I wish I hadn't. I don't, I, part of me wishes I hadn't said it. Not because I wanted her to think I was angry, but like, it wasn't okay. And I don't love that the last thing my mom heard me say to her was like, hey, it's okay that you're going to die. And I just think it's really weird that hospice nurses tell you that. I wish I had said no. Like, I wish I'd been like, this is insane. Like, why are you? telling me weird tactic yeah Yeah. I get it like you're trying but like it's not my job in this moment to guide her into death like I'm 15 like I have no mom now and so I remember everyone was out of the room and then she was gone that was like it they were like okay that's it she took her last breath and I just remember being like are you sure like I couldn't I don't people don't look that different right when they die which I think I expected it to be like oh, it's so different now she's gone, but it just wasn't. It's weird when someone dies at home because I felt like she was there for so long because we had to like call someone to come get her body and they had to change her. And I remember we had to pick like what clothes do you want to put her in? And we just like filled her pockets with like letters and pictures. And I remember my uncle being like, they're going to take all that out when they cremate her. And I was like, I don't care. Like I want this to go with her. What they do with it once she's there, I'm not in charge of. And so it was like, I want to send this stuff with her. And because her and my dad had been having issues, she was wearing a ring with mine and my brother's birthstones instead. And I remember someone was like, you should really take that ring off. And I was like, absolutely not. Like, I want that to go with her. I don't care. Somebody who's cremating her is going to steal it. They have to deal with that in their own conscience and like their own life. Mm -hmm. But for me, I was like, I need to know that that went with her. And then we all just sat around and people were just still there. And I just remember being like, why are there so many people (laughs) in my house? But it was like, because everyone loved her so much Mm -hmm. and- no one wanted to leave. Like, no one is ready to go. Yeah. I'm glad she was at home, but it was also just your house feels, like, just haunted. I mean, we moved here for them, and now they're going to miss the baby's first two years. It just really takes selfishness to a whole new level. It's not like your parents are doing anything. My parents are dead, Bert. Away We Go, starring Maya Rudolph and John Krasinski, was released in 2009. The film was written by Vendela Vida and Dave Eggers and directed by Sam Mendes. The story follows a couple, Verona and Bert, expecting their first child. They road trip across the country to see friends and family to decide where the best place would be to raise their kid. Throughout the trip, everyone tries to give them parenting advice or relationship advice, and sometimes Verona and Bert don't even see eye to eye. But the most fascinating part of the film is how Verona's parents being dead come up a lot for her while she's pregnant, and it affects the way that she views marriage, family, and death. No one else seems to relate to this movie in any way. (laughs) People are always like, oh yeah, it's fine. And I'm like, no, it's my favorite movie. And I think it just really, I saw it in 2009, so I was 19. I went and saw it with my dad. I remember seeing it in the theaters. We were like visiting my aunt, so we were in a weird city at like a different movie theater. And I just walked out and said to everyone, like, that's one of my favorite movies in the whole world. Like, I've never loved a movie as much. I think at 19, you're, like, really primed to, like, connect with something, too, because you're just, like, open to the world and just everything feels like, oh, my gosh, you're speaking to me. One of the first people from Verona's life that we meet is her sister. And in your classic parentless sibling relationship, One person wants to talk about it way more than the other one does. And Verona and her sister's relationship is no different. Verona's character, despite being the older child, has a clear aversion to talking about her grief with her sister. Can you imagine how excited mom and dad would be if they could see you now? Stop. You're doing it again. What? You're just getting all... Trying to get me to talk about them. It's only because you never do. 
I do. You know I do. I just did. I just want to talk more. You're the big sister. You remember more. Fine. What do you want to know? So yeah, I think that bathtub scene I always have thought feels really backwards because the younger sister is like, you have more memories. And I know my brother feels that way. And I'm always like, Kevin, if there's anything you want to know, like just ask me because I don't know what to tell him. I'm like, I don't know what you remember, what you don't remember, what you don't want. There's certain things he's like, I don't want to know about that. So don't tell me. And that's fair. But it's it's always that was really interesting where it's like, oh, this feels backwards because I feel yeah. like it's usually the younger sibling who's more closed off and the older one who's like, hey, 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 do you want to talk about this? Do you have questions? Totally. Or at least that's how I am. I mean, that's the dynamics that I've in doing this podcast and in living life. Um, that is the <laughs> dynamic that I've seen. And yeah. so it was interesting to see it reversed. Mm-hmm. A lot of the uncomfortable but like funny conversations that come up are people kind of giving unsolicited advice to them and there's one in particular which was more uncomfortable than fun but the Maggie Gyllenhaal character who is like condescendingly talking to Verona about how like because your parents died and then there's also like this really weird racial component that she brings up as well. Roderick, 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 it's so easy to forget how great the economic divide is these days. These guys have nothing. How should we expect them to know anything about anything? And Verona lost her parents. Honey, how old were you when they died? 22. Why? Oh, you poor thing. I was just wondering how much your mama was able to pass on to you about motherhood before she died. Your people have such a wonderful oral tradition. Okay, that's it. I think for me, I've like built walls where I'm like, I don't need advice from anyone because the person I want advice from is gone. And I feel like that's how I see it with my Rudolph's character is that she's like, none of you know what's best for me. Everyone's crazy. And like, if my parents aren't here to give me this advice, then I'm just going to figure it out on my own. And I think that's like really what I relate to where Mm -hmm. I like don't want anyone's advice because I'm like, you're not my mom. You don't know what's best for me. You don't know me. I also don't really agree with other decisions you've made in your life. Like, why would I want your advice on this one? Yeah. And so I think for me, like I've put up so many defenses to be like, I can do this on my own. I can figure it out. My mom gave me all the tools that I needed. Like, she's inside of me because everyone's always like you're so much like her and I'm like well if I'm like her then I can figure this out by myself and I don't Mm -hmm. need other people's advice I think I'm like pretty I have no interest in what other people think I should do in those situations another scene in the film reveals that Bert has proposed marriage to Verona several times but she said no it's later revealed that Verona doesn't want to get married because the idea of her parents not being able to be there would be too heartbreaking But perhaps the most intriguing scene of the film happens actually in Verona's absence. Bert's brother Courtney is going through a divorce because his wife suddenly left him and their daughter. Courtney worries about his daughter and what it'll be like for her to grow up without a mom. And two really interesting bits happen in this scene. The first is that Courtney's wife leaving makes Bert's anxiety skyrocket. He fears Verona will die at any moment and leave their child motherless. Bert is with his brother and his brother's wife kind of mm-hmm. like went AWOL. And so there is kind of like another, like the, you know, the little girl, she no longer has her mother around. And for, in I thought it was really interesting that they made Bert, uh, John Krasinski's ca- character, be so concerned with something happening to one of them rather than Verona having that mindset, because I feel like, I've certainly like I've spent my whole life just like anytime anyone from my family calls, I'm like, oh, my dad died. Great. Um, <laughs> yeah. And so it was interesting that they made him really concerned with loss when the person who you'd think would be concerned with loss um, kind of didn't show that. Yeah, I think it's really that whole I feel like that's like the crux of where I feel so understood by this movie when the brothers talking about like she's going to be the little girl without a mom for the rest of her life. Mm -hmm. Like she has to go to prom. She has to do all these things. And for me, I'm like, that's how I feel. Like I do all these things about my mom. The number one way to find myself as a person is like, my name's Chelsea and I have a dead mom. Like that is like my number one defining. So I feel like that conversation. And then I think it's really interesting that Bert doesn't 
make the connection that his wife Life went is through this. That. Yeah, yeah, totally. He's so sad for his niece, which like, of course you should be sad for her. But when they're sitting on the, on the trampoline and they're mm-hmm. talking about it and he doesn't make the connection where he's like, this little girl is going to be without her parents forever. I'm always like, Bert, that's what your wife is going yeah. through. And like, I feel so, it makes me sad for her because totally. I think for Verona's character where I'm like, nobody in this moment is like, oh, that's what you're dealing with, you mm-hmm. know? And it's like, I think we all associate those moments of like having to be motherless with being young. Mm-hmm. And so when the dad's talking about like, she has to learn how to do her hair and like all this stuff. But Verona has to have a baby without her mom. Like those moments don't stop. And I think that's been a really hard part. I'm sure for you too, like where you lose someone young. And in my mind, it was like right when my mom died, I was like, okay, she won't be here for high school graduation. She won't be here like when I fall in love for the first time. She won't be here for prom. But then the older I get, I'm like, oh, she's not going to be here the first time I like move across the country. Like it's these bigger things that I forgot Mm -hmm. would happen. Yeah, it's just the rest of your life, like checking off a list of the things that she won't be here for. Every single thing. Yeah. Yeah. And then obviously watching... Bert not make that connection was like you have to assume that it's intentional but it it, I think in a way it showed that you know you could be someone could be your like partner in life and can understand you in so many ways but you can never fully understand each other's childhood trauma if you didn't go through it and that there's still going to be these like blind spots that you need people who've been through similar things to be able to like get that out and understand that part of you. Bert loves her so much and like you can tell that he loves her so much but he's just so blind to it and when he like casually says like I know you don't want to get married because your parents aren't going to be there and it's like that's not casual like that's humongous I don't want to get married I was just Mm -hmm. talking about this last week where I was like I could never have a wedding the thought of having a wedding without my mom I was like I went to a wedding this weekend of a friend who doesn't have a mom and I was like I don't know how she did it like I don't know how she went through the whole day and had fun like I know myself and I couldn't separate those things enough. Even like I went to Europe and I was sad because I was like, my mom never got to go to Europe. Mm. And it was like, okay, you got to like shake that. You cannot let this whole (laughs) trip be defined in that way. But I was like, oh, a wedding is something I can skip. Like I can easily skip a wedding. It's not my dream. But when he says that, I was like, oh, even the people who love you so, so much still can be so passive or like dismissive about these things. Mm -hmm. I get so frustrated at that part every time where I'm like, no, that's a huge deal. It's yeah. not just like a casual, like, you don't even marry because your parents can't be there. It's like, yeah, because that would be terrible. Like, mm-hmm. could you imagine? The film becomes even more profound when you realize that Maya Rudolph isn't just portraying a parentless character, but that she actually lost her mom in real life to cancer when she was seven years old. In a Hollywood Reporter comedy actress roundtable from last summer, Maya, as well as another parentless actor, Jane Fonda, connected in a moment that gave me goosebumps. Jane lost her mom to suicide when Jane was 12, and she talks about how her abandonment issues manifested in her character in Grace and Frankie. Took me a season to come to care for my character, Grace. I had to go back into therapy and start Prozac. (laughs) (laughs) Why? Oh, it's, it's, that's where the vaginal dryness is coming from. (laughs) Thank you, doctor. (laughs) Well, actually, it took me a long time to figure it out, because it was, I had a nervous breakdown during the first season and i discovered it's because the very first episode our husbands tell us that they're going to leave us after 40 years and marry each other Uh and that triggered abandon this is not a good thing to talk no it isn't but it it was a big trigger and i didn't realize that a character like that could be a you know in a comedy could actually trigger something very profound shortly after the conversation segues into what women can learn from each other and maya says this I learned how to be a woman by watching other women. Like, I felt, I grew up without a mom, so I felt like a female impersonator my Me whole too. life. Me too. Me too. And yeah. I, right? 100%. Right? And, I, and so that, and I didn't want to ask for the information, so I'd go into my friends' bathrooms and I'd peek in their cabinets and be like, oh, that's facial cream. One other thing that I was thinking about, too, is you know how everyone keeps telling Verona that she's so big? Mm-hmm. So she's like six months and everyone's like, there's no way at the airport. They tell her, like, you can't fly because you're definitely more. This has happened to me where things happen with your body as you get older. Or like, you know, things change in the way your body develops. And I'm sure if her mom was there, she could be like, hey, is this how your pregnancies were? And probably they were because we're super similar to our parents. Mm-hmm. And I imagine her mom probably also was really big at six months and 
I think for me, like with health stuff or just anything with my body, especially like puberty time and after that, like developing, and there's no one to be like, hey, is this normal? Because literally there's nobody else who would know besides my mom. Yeah. Because even my dad's around, but it's like, he doesn't know what my boobs are like. Like he doesn't know what it's like to have boobs. And I'm like built so similarly to my mom that that's been a really weird thing for me. And I've just remember watching the movie being like, I wish that she could just ask her mom, like, is this how you were? And probably her mom would say yes. And then she would feel normal, like more normal. Yeah. And yeah, there's somebody who you're literally built from them. And so they're like, yeah, this is why that happens, you know? Yeah. I mean, don't you just look at her and want to give her everything she's ever wanted? So incredibly unfair that she can't. Yeah, you're right. It's unfair that she can't have a baby and that bad parents still get to be parents. And good parents die when their daughters are in college. So what? Look, all we can do is be good for this one baby. We don't have control over much else. Yeah, so my mom died March 10th. My birthday is March 19th. And my brother's birthday is March 30th. So she died like right before both of our birthdays. And my dad had to plan her funeral between our two birthdays because he was like, I don't want it to be too close to either of your birthdays because I don't want to ruin your birthdays for you forever. But she'd been planning this big sweet 16 with like a bounce house and hot dog vendors and like cotton candy machines and all this stuff. And after she died, my dad asked like, hey, do you still want to have a party? And I was like, absolutely not. Like, there's no way. But we kept trying to cancel all the vendors so that like an accidental bounce house doesn't show up like while we're planning a funeral because that would just be the worst. And I think yeah, it'd be a really weird funeral. Can you imagine like <laughs> this hot dog vendor rolls up and he's like, why is everyone crying? <laughs> but we were like going through her notes and stuff that she had. But I think because she was so sick and chemo brain and all this stuff, she had booked like three cotton candy machines and like four bounce houses because I think she kept forgetting what she had been booking. And so it was pretty funny to have to like cancel all this <laughs> stuff after. And so it just felt, even though it was really sad and having to cancel your sweet 16 because your mom died is just like really heartbreaking. It was really funny to be like, oh my God, like what kind of crazy party were we going to end up have like having? All of a sudden there's like four bounce houses in my small front yard. There's like a lot of things like that where it was really sad, but also I feel like this weird little funny thing would happen and it was like it felt like a little piece of her being like hey like still laugh because this is you know it's a bittersweet 16 yes it was my friends threw me a surprise party instead and it was really weird because I remember being like I want to have fun but this is so weird but I know you guys have the best intentions and yeah so I had really really good friends which I feel super super lucky for The day after my mom died, actually, I just woke up in the morning and all of my friends were there and I have no idea like how they got there or who organized it or what, but we literally just sat and like took over the living room and just sat there. And so luckily I had that group of friends through still to now. It's like, those Mm -hmm. are the people I see when I go home. But high school was weird. I got a boyfriend really soon after my mom died, which was also really weird. Was it Carlos? <laughs> no, Carlos was rooting for you He's too. my gay friend. Oh. I love him so much. Yeah. We're, he and I are still friends. He lives yeah. in Portland. He's wonderful. But that, you know what? His family was also rooting for that because yeah. they were like, please don't be gay. <laughs> Fall in love with Chelsea. But no, I started dating this guy right after, which I think you know, it's like normal, right? I was 16 and I was like, ooh, a boyfriend. He became so important and he carried so much for me where all my happiness I think was really wrapped up in this relationship in an unhealthy way. Not that, I mean, he wasn't abusive or anything, but it was just like, I should not have dated this guy for three and a half years and from high school. But I did, I think, because I just tied so much of like, my mom died and he and I started dating two weeks later. Yeah, and you had to like transfer yeah, somewhere. Because of where, yeah, I couldn't feel all those feelings. But high school was hard. I just, I think everyone expected me to have it together. I'm a person who like pretty much has things together all the time. My grades didn't get bad or anything. And I just was fine. You know, it was like everyone was kind of like, well, Chelsea seems fine. So we'll just let her be fine. And I think back and I'm like, why did no adult say like, hey, you should be in therapy or like, hey, even if you seem okay, there's other stuff going on. 
And so I think for me, that's always like high school is just a weird time to think back on. I was also pretty upset with my dad about some stuff. And so there was a lot of like being like, nobody's here to give me rules. I'm going to do whatever I want. But I wasn't a bad kid. So Mm -hmm. it was like, luckily, fine. (laughs) You know, like I still graduated and got like a scholarship to college and all this stuff. But I think it was just, I was just really sad. And I think I was just really sad and felt like I had nowhere to put it. And luckily, I had really good friends. And I had this boyfriend. And it was, I was just really sad. I didn't cry for six months after my mom died. I cried at her funeral. And then I didn't cry literally for six months. And the first time I cried was like a fight with that boyfriend. And I remember being like, oh, even in that moment as a 16-year-old, I was like, oh, this is bad. Like something bad is happening here. But you're 16, so you're like, okay, I'll just keep doing it. It's fine. What aspect or part of your life do you believe that the experience of losing your mom affected the most? I truly don't know how to separate anything. Maybe my relationships with my like immediate family like my dad and I are really close now despite having issues previously and like I love him so so much and my brother and I are super super close my mom's mom and I were really really close she died in 2010 but even after my mom died we were really close and I would like call her every weekend when I was away at college and we would talk on the phone and every decision I make feels clouded in like what would my mom have wanted me to do what did my mom not get to do It's weird that I live in California now because my mom never got to come to California and wanted to so, so bad. We had a trip planned. There's like an adult make-a-wish. And so she had one of those trips planned. And it was supposed to be to come to California to go to Napa and go hot air ballooning. And then they were like, sorry, you're too sick to send you to California, which is just really sad. So it's weird that I live here now. And I try and think about it like, is it because I thought my mom wanted to be in California? But I don't know. Like, I don't know how to separate any of that stuff. And, like, subconsciously, maybe it's partially that. But it just feels weird to do stuff that she never got to do. Yeah. I think the older I get, the more I realize as similar as I am to her, I am really different from her also. And I think there's a lot of positive feelings with figuring out the ways in which I'm different because I think it helps me, like, figure out my identity separate Mm -hmm. from being just, like, Karen's daughter. And so that's been a good part about getting older and doing therapy. Is there anything that you know you really want to work on but haven't really gotten to yet in terms of the grief? I think the biggest thing is starting to label the stuff that wasn't perfect about her. Mm-hmm. I think I'm really protective of her memory. And if somebody were to say something bad about her, I would lose my mind. But I think as I work through stuff and as I think about things about my personality or who I am, there's things that my mom didn't do perfectly, of course, the way any parent doesn't do everything perfectly. But I think it's been really hard to face that stuff. And I think it's really hard because you can't get any closure. And so it's part part of me is like, why be upset about this? Why even process the things that she did wrong? I know that she would say sorry. And I know that she would be heartbroken that she hurt me in these ways or whatever. And even when I talk about it with my therapist, she can see. She's like, okay, you're shutting down. Like, you don't want to say this. And I'm like, no, I don't want to put into the world something that I think my mom did wrong because I don't – I don't even think I believe in heaven – But I'm like, man, if my mom could hear it, I know that she would be so heartbroken that she hurt my feelings in this way or that like I still carry this memory of a thing that she said to me when I was 13 that really hurt my feelings. And she would hate it because I know that her intentions were never bad. And so I think it's really hard for me to process anything about her that isn't good. Is there anything you know, whether it be therapy or being open about it, that you feel like has helped you through the experience or has helped you through the grief? Yeah, I'm super open about it. I talk to everyone about my mom. I feel like I bring her up all the time. And I think there was a long time where I was scared that people who didn't know her wouldn't understand who she was. And so it was felt really scary to make new friends or it felt really scary to like distance from old friends, which is just what happens. You know, the friends you have when you're 12 are not going to be the friends you have forever. But I think... Sorry, Heidi. (laughs) Yeah, I think the friends that I have now have gotten really good at, like, bringing my mom up. One of my best friends who I've made in California will just randomly be talking about stuff, and she's like, yeah, cheers to Karen. And, like, we'll bring my mom up by name and we'll now tell stories that I've told, like, to her friends where she's like, oh, I told this story about your mom the other day because it's so funny. And I was like, you're bringing up like it's so cool that someone who never knew her is bringing up my mom so I think being open about her a lot of times it's interesting because I feel like my own family and my friends from back then don't talk about her nearly as much 
as the friends who didn't even know her. I have a coworker who has two kids and I'll always say like, oh, this is what my mom did or whatever, I'll bring it up. And she's like, can you write me a Karen Quinn parenting book? Like I want all of her tips. Like I want to know all the things she did. Cause like when me and my brother, one example would be like, when me and my brother were little and we would fight, she would be like, you have to hug. And so she would literally make us sit and hug. Or if my brother would hit me, my mom would be like, Kevin, do you want Chelsea to think it's okay for men to hit her? Which is like so <laughs> insane, but it's so funny. And so stuff like that, where it's like, I think the friends out here weirdly know her better, bring her up more. And I think it's just because they're not tied to like the sad memories of her. And they everyone has their own grief that they're working through. And I think that's been like a big accepting that just because others aren't grieving the way that I want them to be grieving or the way that I'm grieving is okay. And it's not respectful but I think that's been a really hard lesson to learn and thing to accept and we spread her ashes a year and a half ago and I think that felt like a big turning point for me in my grief and in how I was dealing with it. I think for me just talking about her is the most important thing I can do and I think anyone who I'm gonna get close to has to understand that like they need to know my mom even though they'll never know her like I need them to listen to the stories like take them in in a way that they like they know her because I don't think I can have people in my life who I feel like don't know my mom I lead everything with like hi I have a dead mom like on first dates I'm always like eh, my mom's dead and I was like maybe you don't need to bring that up right away but I can't help it thank you for listening to this episode of don't tell the babysitter mom's dead if you want to find out more about Chelsea you can follow her on Instagram at chel.c dot Quinn, that's C-H-E-L dot S-E-A dot Quinn, or on Twitter at Chell of the C, which is spelled C-H-E-L-O-F-T-H-E-S-E-A. If you want to support this podcast, you can go to the Patreon at patreon.com slash deadmomcast, where I drop episode extras, any exciting news, and starting this year, recommendations of books and movies that had great representation. I'm Brittany Ashley, and you can follow me at Brit27Ash on Twitter and Instagram or at BrittanyAshleyFunny.com. The music in this episode is by Interstellar Sarah Michelle Geller, and the logo is by Christine Tuna. <laughs>